But I believe gold will eventually lead to digital gold or Bitcoin because it just makes sense because it's technology. Gold will get us through economic winter and it will survive and do very well. But then the technology in Bitcoin will evolve even further. And obviously, it's going to be what we're going to be using. I believe there can be some kind of synergy, and I would recommend governments to do that. Welcome to episode three of the Block Reward podcast. Our guest today is Joseph Barbudo. Joseph is an economic forecaster and the brains behind a platform called Economic Longwave. Longwave is a uh, methodology that uses an economic model from Russia in the 1930s, an economist by the name of Kondratiev, whose principal study was looking at the expansion and contraction of credit on long duration cycles and uh, as sort of the key indicator for economic change. And so Joseph's not a Bitcoiner per se, but the conversation I think is relevant because Bitcoin itself exists and has a value, in my opinion, for investors now, because we are at a time where credit and debt have basically continually expanded for 50 years, plus since the time in 1971, when Richard Nixon um, suspended the redemption of gold for the US dollar. So it's really, since since that time ended, um, our money, our paper money has been on a has been like a giant balloon, continuously expanding, expanding, expanding. And the long wave theory is based on the idea that at a certain point, um, the amount of credit and debt in the system inevitably becomes unmanageable, unbearable, and something has to give. Now, as a Bitcoiner, I believe that the thing that happens as a result of unmanageable debt is we transition to a system where money is based in reality again, money makes sense, and that thing is finite money. And that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is the reverse of what we're using today. Instead of having money that continuously expands and continually becomes less valuable, Bitcoin becomes more valuable over time simply by virtue of the fact that nobody can ever make any more of it. It's a really important idea. Joseph himself is just a a person who looks at the world in a really different way and a fascinating person to listen to. And so I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if if it's not as Bitcoin-y as uh, as others, um, if you're not a Bitcoiner, maybe that'll be a refreshing break for you. So enjoy. All right. uh, Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. My guest today is Joseph Barbudo, who is the Economic Longwave on Twitter. Joe, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be great. Uh, so maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners in terms of uh, how we sort of started to uh, interact with each other. I, I found you on Twitter. Uh, beyond Bitcoin, I, I have an interest in uh, Canadian economics, macro stuff, and uh, you've you got some really interesting perspectives. And I think one of the one of the things in particular that, uh, that drew me to you in the first place was um, I'm a huge fan of the book, The Fourth Turning. And uh, your ideas aren't necessarily, you know, uh, tied to the fourth turning, but you you have this kind of cycle theory. And uh, wonder if we could just start by uh, you talking a little bit about uh, the long wave and uh, and what what it is. Sure, the long wave I discovered by accident. 
I wasn't looking for it or I'm not a traditional economist where I went to school and I want to be an economist. I was more interested in perfecting my timing models. I think I had mentioned this uh, or I've mentioned this numerous times is that I started in my career at the peak of the last real estate bubble in Canada, 1989. I actually bought a condo. It was devastated financially, but I started the investment business. So that gets you to learn about economics very quickly because people have an assumption things always go up. So those two things and my curious nature led me to finding the best in the world. And for the most part of the 1990s, I was managing using a value investing by the late uh, John Templeton and Peter Kundal. They, they, they had, the, outside of Buffett, the best performance long-term of any fund manager out there. And it was very simple, just avoiding overpaying for assets. And I did extremely well in that I avoided those learnings my clients avoiding the collapse in uh, 2000 and 2008. We saw that this was coming. But during the 90s, I stumbled upon looking for, people were talking about gold, and there was this forum, and it said long wave forum, very archaic. Remember, this is the middle of the 1990s, just, I mean, global adoption rate was maybe 2% of the internet and I was already using it. I've always been an early adopter of technology and I find it fascinating. And I learned about it. And in that forum, I met the greatest minds, hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers, advisors, historians, researchers, economists, varying backgrounds and, and investors. And they were all brilliant. It was the best education of my life. I just was absorbing everything. And I was reading books. And they were looking to chondrative. I said, what's chondrative? What's this? And from that, there was many books on the topic. And so I just dived into it and I learned about it. And I came up with a model. Later in the late 90s, I was early about warning the clients about what was going to happen. And so I stumbled upon Martin Pring, who uh, has a technical analysis and he has a book about it's called the all season investor he has a book about market timing using the chondritive and i'm like this is fantastic well i'm going to make a canadian version and everything just was perfect i mean my timing was so much better but the the, the thing is i learned there's so many books and interpretations because if you can start in this right it's a black hole and what i decided to do was Take the best of all of them because some focus on the social aspect because it is the chondritive is not a market timing. It's a social cycle like the fourth turning. And if you read the fourth turning, you will know that Neil Howell does mention the chondritive cycle in the book. Uh, and if you listen to all the masters today, they all point to chondritive. So this is the starting point. Now, the summation of the chondritive cycle can do this. There's four seasons like the fourth turning, but really the fourth turning, is, it's, it's called the seculum cycle. It's a lifetime, 86 years, right? It's 21 years each uh, uh, turning. The, for, uh, the long wave is very different. It focuses on the technology and the social mood in each of the seasons. So after a collapse, we had a economic winter from 19, 
1930 to 1946. So we had economic spring. And that economic spring is all the debt is cleaned, savings rates are high, new technologies at the time was the automobile, suburbia, uh, fertilization, uh, mortgages, long-term mortgages, all these technologies, radio, TV, we saw that were just improving the productivity of the countries. And debt levels always remain low because demand for credit was rising. So this is called the upwave. In the second season, from 66 to 81, it overheats. And this is where the economy inflation was the most. If anybody's old enough, old enough will remember that period of overheating. And that peaked in 81 at the same time with the peak in interest rates. And from 1981 until 2021, 2022, we had autumn, the longest autumn. But autumn can be looked at in terms of, in simplification, the falling price of credit and the financialization of the economy, simply because the bank's product, which is credit, becomes cheaper and more, more and more people can take on credit, which is great for earnings. Eventually, it overwhelms the economy because GDP is not benefiting from all this unproductive debt. And then it collapses and it causes economic winter or depression, purging, bankruptcy, restructuring, societal upheaval, wars, civil unrest, and a, a political revolution. And then the next upwave will start. Now, this was discovered by a communist, a communist economist called Nikolai Kondratov, who was doing research on behalf or for Stalin or the uh, the Communist Party at the time. And he did articulate that this cycle would collapse and have a depression. Stalin was very happy. But his mistake was he articulated it would then come back stronger than ever. And for that, this man was sent to jail and then later was shot and killed for dare discovering that capitalism is an evolutionary economic system. It's not some linear Keynesian pipe dream or communism or socialism, stagnation, linear. It, nothing works in that way. So that's what was his discovery. And so all of us who talk about it have, have extended his work, give a tip of a hat, because this man died for, in, in some ways on our behalf for discovering and noticing uh, the long wave, which is a gigantic global social cycle. I hope that made sense. Yeah. And so just to, to try to, you know, keep this, um, would, it, would it be fair to say that it's, it's the social cycle it, that relates to um, the, the relationship between the real economic activity that's happening and the amount of credit as the amount of credit expands and contracts over time based on, the, the price and availability of that credit. Yes, yes. And, and the key is too much of the credit is unproductive. The only credit that is considered productive is one taken out by businesses to expand the business for a new form of production, innovation. Real estate is not a productive debt. In, in, in actuality, it's it's counterproductive because it's in debt society, uh, much of the government debt can be productive, but it's uh, the, because of there's no uh, gold standard 
or there's no monetary standard to keep politicians in check, they keep spending and they forgot the Keynesian aspect was to pay down debt. So in the next recession, depression, they go into debt and it was supposed to be a counterbalance. But politics has a short-term cycle. So naturally, it was going to become corrupted. And that's why it's essential for society to have a sound monetary system because politicians will play on the ignorance of the public. And we've, we're seeing that. Like none of this, what has happened in real estate prices in Canada, US, Europe, would have happened without a, a sound, with a sound monetary system. It would have forced them to live within their means. So this is the classic example of abuse of fiat monetary system. And now it's going to end more than likely within a decade at the, at the latest. Yeah, it, it can be it can be tricky to predict, you know, the the ex- precise timing of these events. But uh, I think we, we definitely converge on this idea. And it, it's not a it's not a popular topic in Canada to start talking about the idea that something is going to have to give with the price and the price of, you know, despite how it seems like it just only goes up. It, it can't. It simply can't go up forever. No, there, there no, no market goes up. If you understand the concept of energy cycles, booms and busts, you know, my epiphany was the, the simple scientific uh, physics law of energy moves through a medium like a cycle. And so that's why you have the rise and falls of civilizations and, and shifting powers. And we're seeing that shift move to Asia and we'll have a bust simply because we didn't learn from history in spite of this massive thing called the internet, which a lot of it's free. Uh, we've made all the mistakes. So what's happening as Ray Dalio says, what's going to happen hasn't happened in our lifetime, but has happened in the past. So it's easy to understand what's going to happen. And that's a beautiful understanding of history. So none of my predictions are just taken from the air. They are just studying history and watching the pattern unfold. And with the beauty with AI, what I love today is I'm inputting all that so it can automatically help me pinpoint the the dates. Because it's really simple. Once you understand the concept of the three major cycles of the Kondratha cycle, the Kosnitz, which is real estate, and the business cycle. And when they all turn down together, you get economic winter, which is now occurring. And so how does your, how does your model, you know, and I, I'm asking you this sort of as a softball because I, I see the comments that come back to you on your real estate related posts, but um, how does the model deal with, uh, you know, we're, so we're, we're recording this at the end of summer and um, part of the, what, what's happening in Canada right now is uh, a housing, uh, a housing shortage based on the, the number of uh, foreign students we have, uh, immigration policy, uh, et cetera. And, and a lot of people who are sort of real estate bulls feel these are indicators for um, a long runway for prices to continue to appreciate. And, and maybe to explain to me, why even the, even these things don't make a, a Canadian real estate market immune to realities of uh, cycles? 
Well, that's that's a great question because I looked into it. I I don't mind the uh, the attacks or the question. You know, if it's ignorant comments, I just ignore it. But sometimes there's valid things, and it was immigration. So what I did was I looked at the history of Canada's population. I look at the decadal growth, and then I uh, splice together. Edison Madison's uh, Edison Madison's uh, history of population in Canada and Stats Canada put it together. We've had much higher real. Uh, sorry, we've had much higher population growth, much faster. And what's interesting is when I added up the numbers because I have data about real estate prices. There's no correlation whatsoever. What what drives real estate is affordability. Now, if you look at why has a home in Toronto where I live, an average worker like my father from 1946 until 1970 could have purchased a home with a meager income, it would save for it in five years and pay it off in 10. Uh, house prices never went beyond two times income. And the reason for that is incomes were rising in real terms. Real estate prices were nominally cheap, and we, were, we had a massive baby boom, a, a massive immigration boom. And prices never went beyond three times income until the 70s when women started entering the workforce. And I didn't know this. You know that they weren't even allowed to be on, uh, on the mortgage application, which was interesting. So then prices did accelerate in the 70s. But here's the thing as I throw out to people. We had a secular rise in interest rates in 46 to 81, and real estate prices never collapsed. They actually continued to rise. And the reason they rose and they stayed within nominal terms is incomes were rising, if not faster than inflation rate, and interest rates also kept the speculators out of the market. So only the builders were doing well. What changed in the 80s was the collapse of interest rates. And people don't look at the amount of debt. They look at their cash flow, how much they can afford. And so the business model of a mortgage broker was, well, in the future, sometime over the next five years, which was true, interest rates are going to be lower and your payments are going to be lower. So why wouldn't you go into more debt? And that was true. And it worked. And that stopped working last year. And hence, now we're seeing the stress we're seeing the technical defaults rising to 40 to 50%. And if you look at the immigration, I, I didn't find any correlation. If anything, we've had faster growth and pr prices collapsed. Uh, if you look at the real numbers from 1870 to 1936 in Canada, we had a massive population growth. And yet in real terms, real estate prices were 30% lower in the 30s than they were in 1870. So there was a secular bear market, even though that was the, the fastest recording recorded population growth in Canada. So when I, and then I looked at the numbers and it was, it, it became obvious. So my thesis or Kondratov's thesis, and I would actually say it's uh, our thesis after because Kondratov didn't notice this, but Michael Alexander, who wrote the Kondratov cycles, labeled this the monetary cycle. So I'm always acknowledging people who make a discovery. And I thought that was a brilliant observation. And my thesis taking his work another step was, if I'm right, when interest rates starts to rise, we're going to get stress in the system, and then that will start to systemic collapse, and we're seeing as we speak. Population 
has nothing to do it because here's the other aspect. Once real estate prices fall, as they did in the early 90s, and interest rates fell, once the the trauma of a collapse happens. All the speculators are burnt and they had no interest. And that decade I was in the investment business, nobody talked about real estate. It wasn't even on the radar map. If anything, the investment business was doubling every two and a half years because capital was coming from GICs as interest rates collapsed and real estate was no longer the game in town. So you, you can't discount the, the traumatic impact of a, of a collapse and so the same thing will occur. The second leg down in real estate, once that occurs, you're going to see a massive dump of uh, real estate on the market. And that whole thesis of immigration will collapse because it, it, it doesn't take into account that immigrants, for the most part, can't afford homes. And that's even more so as prices stay relatively high and the price of credit is still rising, probably will continue rising next year. So if, if there wasn't an issue we wouldn't have 30 to 50% technical defaults through the banks are extending the mortgage. But that's really is a technical default. If they stayed, if they stayed within the parameter of the qualification, well, what it's saying is that they don't qualify for these mortgages and they should be defaulting or restructuring the debt. So, you know, extending this and pretending this is not going to work because we're not getting the economic growth to sustain it also. And I could go on and on, but really, those are two important points. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned wages, and I've seen you post about wages at different times. Um, w- wages have basically done nothing in in thirty years in Canada since the early eighties. Yeah, you know what's really sad? Uh, I, again, I'm from Toronto, and uh, I was working as a bus boy in 1976 as a teenager. Tells how old I am, <laughs> and real wages have gone nowhere in Toronto since that real adjusted for inflation nowhere so but we've seen real estate prices in Toronto go up what 500% how is that mathematically possible if they don't have the income and women are are part of the mortgage and is now part of the qualification you look at it's, the population growth wasn't there until last year so what's driving it? Mortgages, they were extended and they were lengthened, but the, the key was the price of credit. And as soon as that would start to reverse, that would be the end of the real estate market. Now, there's a demographic cycle that peaked last year and another one in 2024. And that's why I believe the worst of the real estate cycle will be after next year, not this year. It's actually going to get worse. And then we'll have other issues to deal with. And that's why my forecasts are about a real estate crisis, a banking crisis, a fiscal crisis, and then a, a, a sovereign debt crisis, and then the currency crisis. It's, it will go in succession. But one thing out of a time, because I find pe- that overloads people. So I'm slowly giving them the information about the long way where we are in the cycle. Um, so as you as you work your way through sort of explaining the the progression of what you forecast is coming um you, you use the term deleveraging a lot right now and what what are people what should they be thinking about and how can they potentially prepare for this uh the onset of economic winter that's a great question the obvious thing is uh, get out of debt right and and people will say i can't i've got a house i've got a family Sure you can. 
because the economy will force you to. It will force a lot of Canadians to deleverage because uh, they might lose their jobs. Uh, uh, governments might uh, uh, be forced to uh, stop the extension of the mortgages because they'll see it become a systemic risk to the banks. Um, we see prices will start to fall, and all of a sudden you, people will see that the, the values that they thought were there were artificial. And then you'll get a panic, and that's still in front of us. So deleveraging means living within your means, uh, not going into debt. And that might mean for a lot of people a change in lifestyle. So right now you have the option to change your lifestyle on your own. I believe by next year it will be forced on for large portion of Canadians, a million to two Canadians, even more. I mean, they're already stressed. If you saw that other chart, they're already dipping into their savings and going into debt to sustain their lifestyle. This is the sad outcome of a fiat-based uh, economy. I like it. I like Richard Duncan's name, creditism, right? Capitalism morphed into creditism. So it's, all, it's just all based on credit. We're all consuming from tomorrow to live for today. We're buying homes we can't afford. Government are supporting programs that they can't really deliver unless they go into debt. Not, much of this is not coming from productivity and real wealth. And that's the thing that is important for people to understand. So when it, the crisis arrives, we have to address how do we create real wealth in the future? And that's part of what we're going to discuss today, right? It's decentralization is Kondrato's fifth wave, without a doubt. It's an unstoppable social cycle. And um, the faster you recognize that, the faster you're going to win. You're going to, the outcome for you would be much better than most people on this planet. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between sort of hard and soft money. You know, a lot of people don't, don't really understand hardness of, of assets and money. Uh, but maybe before we do that, just to kind of loop the loop, that last, uh, answer of yours into a, a bow, um, how the, how the sort of continuous expansion of credit has in practice and in, in the Canadian marketplace created this sort of, uh, extension of the, the cresting increasing real estate prices over time. Um, how does how has credit easy credit in your opinion you know being the root cause of uh, unsustainable real estate appreciation how ha well if you look like how how does it work just for for people who don't you know spend spend their days reading these blogs and stuff okay so if you look at the price of real estate again from 46, when really the modern mortgage was really adopted after World War II, prices never went beyond. I wish, I wish we had a chart. I could show you that more, but it never went beyond two times income. And how is it possible in the city I lived in Toronto? It went to 16, 17 times income at the top. Mathematically, that is not possible. It is possible if mortgages became cheaper. Now, you have to ask yourself, if you're a person watching, if you have a mortgage, 
If interest rates dramatically went to 10% tomorrow and stayed there for the next five years, what do you think is going to happen? And the obvious thing is that real estate prices would collapse because nobody could afford those people who have to mortgage price. Uh, those who want to buy a home couldn't afford them. The income aren't there and the prices are, are so out of line from income. But once the prices collapse, then the prices and the debt at, let's say, 10%, then is feasible. So leverage only occurs, or Ponzi finance only occurs when you're able to leverage. And the leveraging started globally in 1981 when they deregulated. So imagine interest rates stay 10% nominally from 81 until today. You wouldn't have any kind of Ponzi finance. It will, the, the, the system would always have a counterbalance where uh, prices would be kept down because people couldn't speculate unless you had a black market where people were offering cheaper rates. But basically, it would be impossible. And if you study history, every depression comes from an unsustainable buildup of unproductive debt during the monetary wave where interest rates are falling. And so, through, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, so if you look at the interest rate cycle, they usually have a 30, 40 year, a 30, 40 year rise. No Ponzi finance, no speculation, no credit bubbles. As soon as the price of credit starts to fall, the leverage builds up because people just look at their cash flow. Oh, I can get a million dollar mortgage, uh, but try to get a mortgage at 21%. You probably would only qualify for a hundred thousand. So asset prices would have to come back down because the incomes aren't there, right? Because if you look at what drives real estate, yes, supply and demand, but mortgages, the price of credit, and uh, the term. In that it is in Canada, it's very short. It's very similar to the UK. Also, people don't know, we didn't have these things called long-term mortgages during the 1930s. It was a five-year AM, like a vehicle. So what would happen to real estate if interest rates normalized at 8% and we went back to a five-year AM? There is no way these prices could sustain. They would totally collapse because the, the leverage is taken away, right? And it would have to fall back in line with incomes. And I would, I would suggest that they drop 50 to 90% very quickly. Because nobody would qualify for a mortgage. So the price of credit is important to the long wave because it will it will keep it the, the speculation in check as rates rise. And it will cause speculation as they fall because people are thinking short term, oh, wow, I can get a loan at 2%. I can buy four properties and carry it. It's only 400000 he or she does that math at six. It doesn't make sense anymore. And now the math doesn't make sense anymore. And that's why I believe you're starting to see now prices start to roll over again, that the math doesn't line up. So it's really thinking about the leverage comes from speculation and it, during the, the, the falling price of credit. We didn't have economic winter because interest rates in the third long wave peaked in the mid-19-teens. And we had a down wave between 1920 to 1946, where interest rates fell. So if you don't get the monetary wave, the falling price of credit, you won't get a depression, which is a collapse from all that debt. 
And the same thing in 1876, we had a down wave for about 10 years where interest rates were falling. So there was a lot of speculation and that was in railroads back in the day. And 1830s, it was in um, canal. There was a canal mania, speculation, cheap credit, interest rates start to rise, collapse. Interest rates start to collapse, 18, in the 1920s, it was radio, automobiles. These were the, the speculative things at the time and they collapsed and it was all borrowed money. Most importantly, the bank failures didn't come from the collapse of stocks. It came from the collapse of, of all the banks, right? Uh, the bank failures in the, in the U.S. They had uh, thousands of banks fail from people couldn't uh, meet the, the mortgage demands. And the same thing happened in Japan, right? The, the banking crisis was caused from the collapse of real estate values because they were all leveraged. And so here we are in 2023, we have a private debt bubble that is larger than Japan and the U.S. in 29, and we have this massive real estate bubble. Now it's reversing and leverage is going in reverse. Hence, we're going to get a banking crisis over the next year and a half. That's an easy forecast. And, and it sounds, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about how I feel for the ordinary people probably aren't aware of how unusual the last sort of maybe 15 years since 08 uh, interest rate policies have been compared to historical norms and give some context as far as like exactly how fast we have ratcheted out of near zero policy. Like, you know, is there in the looking back through the previous waves, what like how different is what's going on now even compared to what, what the last few cycles? It is very unique, and it's really driven by, you know, the COVID lockdowns and the shortages it caused. Obviously, there was uh, a short-term impact in inflation, but the underlying economy with debt is deflationary, and that's what uh, China is going through. So all this debt eventually leads to deflation. That's the natural order. And I, I want to make a point here because I get this all the time and people are mixing up or misunderstanding. We're a credit-based economy. This is not Argentina where interest rates can go 118% and still function. Get interest rates at 20% in Canada, it will stop functioning within a month. Like nobody could borrow. Uh, prices would collapse. The banks would collapse. The government collapsed. The, the interest rate alone would consume all the taxes. So that's a, an important differentiation between, you know, we're a credit-based economy. If you look at Argentina, virtually there's no private credit there. It's, it, it's private debt to GDP is as low as what the U.S. had in the 1830s, okay, which was there's no really such thing as private credit back then. So since we're all borrowing from the future, automobiles, houses, uh, the governments, um, now businesses are the only one that – I don't count speculative. When that reversed, we started to see the impact in uh, the price of real estate and government revenues. So it's an important and the most important factor. But the key, I'll tell you this, which is there's a great book uh, by Edward Chancellor, The Time Price of Money. And he, he has a chart that says we've never leveraged from the zero bound in history. And to an historian, that's pretty scary because there's no interest rate cushion for those people on the other side of the collapse. 
what saved me during the 90s was interest rates were in a secular downtrend, even though prices of real estate never turned back up. We were in a bear market. For, like they fell uh, and bought them 96 and then they went sideways in real terms. But interest rates fell. So then the cycle started to turn back up again. But it was rising on bonsai finance because interest rates continued their secular fall. Now we get the opposite. And you're you're going to see a ratcheting down of prices and production because of the cost of credit. But I think the most important thing is, is now how low they were. Like we had a record decade of artificially low, even negative interest rates. That is over. And we've le levered from that to the tune of $325 trillion globally, which is an astounding number. I think it's even larger than the GDP. So how that unwinds is going to be fascinating to watch. And I think you and I know uh, where they're planning to go with this, uh, because obviously they're going to be defaulting on the debt in the future. They, you know, The governments don't have the revenue to pay back all this debt. And by the way, when that happens, when the public is aware and they panic, then you get a sovereign debt crisis, as we saw in Greece in 2012. And for people who don't know, interest rates went from 3% to 65% on a five-year note. Now, the money that people made who bought that, but imagine trying to get a mortgage at 65%. I mean, and of course, real estate in Greece collapsed by 50%. And it was a deal of the century. Uh, but so... This is what happens when your government becomes fiscally irresponsible. It eventually catches up to them. And what they don't think about is the, the, when the bondholders panic. And we're starting to see a little bit of that now. And that's the reason, part of the reasons why we're in a secular rise in interest rates. So we have much higher interest rates in the future. And that should be something you should think about if you're, you're levered to real estate. You need to have that in the back of your mind. Can you afford 10, north of 10% interest rates on your mortgage? And if you can't, you, you should be thinking about what you should do when you can, when you have control. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, I, I feel like socially it's a triggering topic to suggest to people that there are probably going to be for future rate hikes, more rate hikes, you know, maybe in September, maybe again in December. Uh, and the response I get a lot is, um, you know, they'll never let it collapse. They'll, they, they can't do this to us. And, uh, I mean, that's, as you know, right. It's just, that's not really how it works. No, that's, I, I would, I would have thought the same thing if I didn't study history. And I understand that thinking because there's an assumption that governments can stop this. They can't stop it because, if anything, they've let it go too far, right? Because their only their only concern is the politician, is the political cycle, and that's very short. And they don't care about the debt that they incur. They just look good because of the social promises they make, but never factor in, we won't have the economic growth. Because usually these programs are put in when the economy is booming, right? And that happened, for the most part, a lot of it in the 1960s. Economy was productive, was growing quickly. We had a baby boom. I mean, what could go wrong? Uh, and if, you, if it was you and I in the 60s as a leader of any party, what's wrong with more social programs? It makes sense. But we're just, the problem is we're extrapolating the trend. 
And we don't realize that eventually the cycle will turn, the Kondraita cycle will turn, and speculation will come back in, or back in. The greed, greediness will come in, right? And speculation. And because this group of people have never experienced it. Like myself, I'm only no, more knowledgeable than the average person around the world because I've studied it. Because what happened to me, I worked in the investment business, and then I'm just curious how things work. So I, they're, they're thinking, is rational, but irrational in the terms of how things work because they are just believing, looking backwards, that they were able to save the system and don't realize there'll be a day where they can't. And that is fast approaching, where they can't bail out everyone. And that will be the end game in the economic winter, where they'll be defaulting. So, uh, you know, th there's a balance. And as long as you have the economic growth, productivity, you can add on more debt. When you see economic growth in a secular decline and you add more debt, it actually puts a break on the economy because we're servicing all that debt. And then once people realize the government's are, are, I mean, that's going to come after the banking crisis and the government's bail out the banks, right? Everybody says, Joseph, they're going to bail out the banks. Don't worry. Okay. What's going to happen to the fiscal debt side of the government? It's going to explode. And then their revenues are going to collapse. Their expenditures are still growing exponentially. And then people are going to go, how are you going to pay for all this? Yeah, yeah. And that's when the panic happens. Right? The cost of servicing the debt rises along with interest rates, which uh, compound the problem sort of exponentially, right? And this is kind of where the U.S. was. I, I think the stats are... Uh, it took it took two hundred years for them to accumulate a trillion dollars in in debt, and uh, they added a trillion dollars to the debt in July. Uh, so the, the you know the exponential price of servicing the debt. Yeah, it's pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah, and that's this is the problem when you don't have a sound monetary system. That politicians will abuse it. So it abuses the system. Sorry, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know and. It, so when we talk about, you know, sound money in Canada, like it, it always shocks people when I start talking about um, how poorly the Canadian dollar has preserved its purchasing power since the, the, the bank act, since the creation of the Bank of Canada in, in 34. And, you know, everybody observes the price of things rising. And, and uh, you know, we, we, it feels like we, we've got to this point where, People, Canadian people are really starting to feel it. But uh, strangely, the connection to the money itself being the issue, it, it doesn't, it's not as obvious for people um, for whatever reason. So you, you talk about um, sound money, and I know you're, you're also a fan of gold. Like, how does, how does, um, how does this play out as we head into, the fifth wave. This is the battle. So if you think about uh, cycles and how uh, the pendulum swings, right? So we had a very small government in the thirties, fiscally responsible. They were able to help and bail out the economy. The economy grew on innovation technology and they remained fiscally responsible after world war two. Actually, the national debt was falling. So we're, now we've gotten to a point that it's not sustainable. So this time, 
it's the government's in trouble. And when they default or when that point comes, they, they will have to shrink. So let's go through the, the various aspects of the long wave. The most important thing about the long wave is the simplicity of understanding technology drives each up wave and over indebtedness causes it to collapse because it doesn't generate an adequate amount of GDP to support it. So we, we know that the governments are going to default. And when they do, they'll be forced, as they were in the 1990s in Canada, to live within their means. And we'll see massive government cutbacks. Two, we're seeing deglobalization in real time. As you and I know, there is this the SWIFT system was used against uh, Russia. And a lot of the world said, oh, whoa, are we next? Is this what's going to happen? And so China and Russia and other people thought it was it would make sense that they start thinking about another currency. So now we're starting to reverse, right? Because there was a trend to globalization and big governments. Now deglobalization, smaller governments. Okay, so look, let's look at the technology. So what, what's driving the fifth wave? Well, the first thing was this thing called the information, which we're still completing. We haven't completed it, right? Here's a fascinating number. To this day, one million people around the world are joining this in information revolution called the internet, and it should be complete by the end of this decade. We have this vast amount of information that is disrupting everything, and this is why governments are trying to control it, disrupting everything that is empowering the individual. Now, I get people say there's a lot of noise and a lot of dark stuff out there, but still, there's enough information on the internet like this so people can exchange ideas. And somebody who has internet access and just a very poor income can become very educated very quickly. Uh, just think of just think of before the Italian Renaissance, the ignorance, the, the, the average person was very poor and ignorant of what was happening or could share their knowledge. After the Renaissance and the printing press, knowledge exploded. And all these revolutions occurred after that. We're having the same thing in, 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 in real time. This is the exciting part, right? We have the internet. And from that information, the computer revolution, and that computer revolution is uh, uh, fueling the genomic revolution. It's uh, the stem cell revolution, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics. Now, you think about all these technologies, counter to the WF, it empowers you, right? the sovereign individual. We don't need government. I mean, once once we can repair the body within 10 years, why do we need the sick care system? It needs to collapse. We can't support it. It's, it's, it's not fi financially viable. With the internet, why don't we have it today? Why can't we get a proper education inexpensively? I know people are working on disrupting that. Um, if you think about the monetary system, you know, it was to allow, facilitate big government. Well, that's going to collapse in the new system if you understand cycles, is reverting to to uh, sound monetary. And if you want a good way to understand that, there's a great bill called the fourth wave. It's just an interest rate cycle since 1200. And it explains these 100-year oscillations from sound money to fiat, sound money to fiat, right? I know Ray Dalio read the book and others, very few. It's a great book, very thick, totally full of data. And this is running again. So decentralized money, Bitcoin or these blockchain technologies, 
the empowerment of the individual with information, robotics, 3D printing, is localized manufacturing, vertical farming, horizontal farming, uh, small-scale nuclear. So all these technologies, and probably uh, the political system will collapse toward a direct democracy. I mean, we don't see representation any longer. Politicians are going on their own agenda. So all these collapses are leading to this decentralized world. The governments aren't sustainable. Deglobalization means that we're going to have to rely locally for production of goods and services. The technology is arriving there. It's plummeting in price. The information wave will connect people around the world. So you can still act globally, but think locally. And it would be the, to the benefit of the individual, but it's to the detriment of the state. Hence, this is why governments like this WF agenda. It empowers those, the status quo. But the status quo never would go without winning. And this explains the war that's emerging and civil war that's going to emerge because it's a battle of, of ideas. Ultimately, they're going to fail, not with some hardship, of course, and they're going to try to f- continue to force their agenda because the, the conjurative is a social cycle and the public will choose what benefits them, you know, self-interest. Self-interest drives the social cycle. And when they see, let me see, am I, am I going to pay three, dollars $4,000 a year into this sick care system or I can get stem cells every year for 1000 in 10 years and I can be as young as a 30-year-old until my body finally gives up at 120. It's pretty simple where people are going to go. It's it's self-interest that drives this stuff. So it's it's this battle that we're watching in real time, and that's why I'm confident, cautiously, but I'm very confident that the chondritis cycle will ultimately prevail. But remember, it's a social cycle. It means it's you, collectively, the 8 billion people on the planet decide what they want. But we're obviously going to have to fight against the agenda and that's going to be a fascinating war uh, or civil war. And we've seen already the attempt in Africa where it failed. So I know that they're going to say it's to save us and whatever. The public's going to say, no, we're not going to give you my business. I'm not going to give you my car. I'm not going to give you my house to bail out. No, we're going to restructure the debt. That's what we're going to do. And it's an opportunity. I'm kind of rambling here, but it's an opportunity to provide people for a hopeful, realistic outcome where the tree is falling. And that's what will drive the fifth up wave? Yeah, I mean, as far as the decentralization of money, it's it's a fascinating. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch unfold. Uh, we we're heading into this. Uh, the evolution of government money, and the next step is central bank digital currencies, which really are leveraging on sort of uh, technological innovation to create an even better way to debase the currency and and uh, monitor everyday people. And, and issue uh, sort of an, a new new level of financial censorship. And, um, you know, Australia, different places in the world, Nigeria, where they're, they're getting rid of cash, you know, these things are going on. Um, it, you know, exactly sort of what you're talking about. Bitcoin is designed to retain value by being a currency that there can never be any more issued. Uh, and certainly not issued unexpectedly or without the consent of the users. So to use your analogy of uh, healthcare, you can, you can choose in the future, uh, you know, assuming it's a choice, to use the money where uh, uh, 
sort of a programmed uh, function of the way it has to work is the continual dilution and expansion of it to pay for things that we don't have the money for to pay for today. Or you can you opt to use the money that is the hardest money ever invented, the, the one money that we can ever make any more of. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, in Canada, again, like getting back to what we've been talking about, it's, we're sort of in the, uh, the most ponzified country in the world. We're the most indebted nation in the G7 by far. We are, uh, you know, basically all the, all the blinking lights on the dashboard are, are on and flashing. And, uh, and this is why I feel like, uh, Bitcoin for Canadians is such an interesting topic and, and, and something it's time to really start to consider. I like it because it's the public is accepting it and it's coming from the public and it's revolutionary from the bottom up. That's how re real revolutions start, not top down. You, you spoke at Canadian Bitcoin conference, uh, in the spring. And, um, for, for those who didn't know, we even have a Canadian a Bitcoin conference in Canada. Uh, what, what was the topic of your presentation? Decentralization is inevitable. It was a, a lot of what I talked about uh, just just recently is that we have the political cycle, the economic cycle, the global cycle, the technological cycle, the social cycle shifting from centralization toward the individual. It's the empowerment of you. We don't need governments. We obviously all of us can say they're no longer service. The social programs are unaffordable. I mean, why do we have education so expensive? There's absolutely no reason why prices can't be 90% lower. Vested interest, holding on to power. The sick care system, we have a diabetes epidemic and an aging populace, mathematically impossible to sustain. But we have this emerging genomic, uh, which is, uh, and all the technologies that I'm seeing, I discuss with other researchers, is fixing things, preventing things, and that we would go in and check up and see what's not working. Um, we'll fix uh, cells, uh, cells uh, autophagy, fasting has become very big. So there's a lot of growth in it. But the, the biggest one is the stem cell revolution, and its price is collapsing, like the genomic. And once it becomes inexpensive, if you talk to anybody, Tony Robbins has a great book, and he tells you about his story where his shoulder was totally destroyed. and after two injections, he can't believe it's like brand new. And, I, and you hear these miraculous recoveries from people who have had two injections of stem cells. The problem is it's very expensive, but it's technology. And the good news is within, 10, within a decade, it's going to be inexpensive to repair yourself. And I think within 20 years, we're going to see disability completely eradicated uh, globally. And that's exciting. Man, that's exciting. You know, uh, people can walk, no disability, grow your own organ, repair something that's worn out. So you can have a complete full life. And, I, and that will destroy the pension system. And, and, and people will work their whole lives, maybe work part time, not full time. But uh, it, it, there's just so much technology that is occurring. And, and I want to make sure I, I talk about some good news. We have record amount of global patents. So there's enormous amount of innovation that is occurring. But people tend to focus on only the dark side. And I got to be guilty. I focus on what's coming. But I'm trying to save as many people from getting wiped out. Because I know what they're going to go through. So I, there's the only time you hear me call myself an expert. 
I'm an expert, right, about losing everything. And I know exactly how painful this will be where you just see prices keep dropping. And it's, a, it's so painful, you just want to get out of it. And that's what's coming. There'll be people, well, it's okay. And then after two years, it's not okay. Then it's affecting family. And then it's causing breakups and fights and financial stress. So you just want to end it. And that's why these real estate bear markets are so long. It's, it's just a painful deleveraging from society. But getting back to the technology, with blockchain, if you think about it, and you think about you're able to, and it comes from the bottom, right? It's never the top is forced in it. And it's, and it's a lie too, right? It's, whole, it's a whole lie. People will discover in time it's a lie. And that will cause their own collapse. So look, it, sorry, it will cause their acceleration of the collapse. But people will see there, it was, there was an agenda where the, the, these technologies that are, are converging are going to empower the individual, then they're going to ask, why am I paying these taxes? What am I getting? I, it's best that money stays in my pocket and I decide the services that I want to use, the education I want to get for my children, that, that, that for preventative care, so I live a vigorous, healthy life without disability, without the need of walkers, um, and, and, and travel. There's, there's so much, it would take days to cover it. But basically, it's the political, economic, technological, social systems are all collapsing. And out of that collapse, like a burnt down forest, you can allow for new growth, and that will cause the next boom. And that's what Kondrat have discovered, right? There is a, a boom coming. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of these things can come across as sort of doomer topics, but there there is so much to be excited about. And a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of uh, one of my favorite books on this subject is Jeff's Price of Tomorrow. And uh, Jeff talks about Price of Tomorrow is basically the idea that te- technology, the advancing technology and everything should make the, the price of production of everything drop forever to zero. And the only reason we haven't seen the, the price of things drop along with the alongside the advance, the advancements of technology is that our financial system is structured such that the, basically the, the price of everything has to go up forever because our, our money loses money, co- loses value constantly by design. Uh, so Jeff sort of argues that these two forces are, are incompatible and ultimately uh, deflation is inevitable because of the, uh, the, the, the unstoppable advancement of, the, of human uh, flourishing. So it is. It is a. I, I'm. To, you know, to sort of echo what you're saying, it can sound negative at times, but but there is there is tons to be excited about. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about gold because you are. You know, people. I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of gold investors that are skeptical about Bitcoin. Um, you mention gold now, and you see it as a part of the sound money future. So. I'm just curious as to if you could just talk a little bit about how you see that fitting in as a Bitcoin person. I look at gold as kind of the horse and buggy of money. Um, it's Bitcoin has solved a lot of the pr- problems that led to gold failing as the backstop of a sound money system in our last go around. So I struggle to see how gold has a future uh, as anything other than jewelry, to be honest, because I, 
I see, I just see Bitcoin as having, uh, in today's world, providing all of the things that we were looking for gold plus more. It's portable. It's easy to store. Uh, there are no grades of Bitcoin. Like you don't need to verify the quality of it. Um, it's verifiable how much total supply there is and the new rate at which we discover new Bitcoin. All of these things are things that, uh, problems that allowed for the sort of state capture of gold. And uh, so how do you see gold being a part of the a sound money future? I really think it's just going to be <clears throat> the the a transitory place because hard assets historically are always the place to know that it survives, right? I mean, I'm not against Bitcoin. I'm, uh, people have asked me regarding my model to include Bitcoin, and I've alluded 5%. I said you should, right, to get familiar with it. But I wouldn't do 100% gold or 100% Bitcoin or 100% real estate we don't know what they're going to do the government when they're desperate. So it's best that you diversify it. But I believe gold will eventually lead to digital gold or Bitcoin because it just makes sense because it's technology. But you got to remember why it's important with gold. It's historically always been money. It still is money. And even though, yeah, it's not portable. I, I, I get that part. Uh, but if, you, if you're if you able to bring a, a bar of gold, you can go anywhere in the world and get some value. Or if that was broken down, you, you would be able to exchange. Everybody understands, extends the, uh, the significance of gold. But I, I believe just like any evolutionary technology, let me backtrack. Gold will get us through economic winter. And it will survive and do very well. But then the technology in Bitcoin will evolve even further. And obviously, it's going to be what we're going to be using. I believe there can be some kind of synergy, and I would recommend governments to do that. The, the gold will give the confidence. Oh, okay, we're going to have a gold back. But you're going to actually use you know, Bitcoin because digital money is – I mean, think of it. When the whole world is connected by 2030, then it facilitates the ability to use digital money. It just assures – it's success where gold will fade into the background. So I think it's initial, very important. And then gold will, uh, sorry, uh, Bitcoin will start to uh, be part of that. And then it'll be the everyday using the money and then it'll be to the side and they'll just talk about reserves. But we'll be using the digital form of money. It's preferable to a central bank digital currency where they want to control you. That's an issue I have with. Who decides that? Who, why do they believe we're going to run out of resources? Have they not looked at technology? What, Malthus has always been wrong. Jevons was massively wrong. Um, um, I, f I forgot his name. He'll come to me. But, you know, he, he, he lost it. The, the, the bet was Simon Hunt. Uh, Paul Eric, right? Uh, you know, there, there is... We're, we're, the amount of poverty is being decreasing dramatically. And we're not going to run out of resources because we can explore the universe. We've only scratched the surface of the planet. And now we have molecular manufacturing. And by the way, I want to say this. Ray Kurzweil came to Toronto 10 years ago, and I asked him how soon the replicator, right? And if you don't know the Star Trek replicator, it's basically you take any atom junk, there's no waste, and then it makes anything you want to desire. That would be the end of capitalism, right? I thought. 
500 years, 400 years. And he methodically told me why it will happen within this century. And it all made sense because it's the convergence of 3D printing, molecular manufacturing, nanotechnology, um, uh, computer uh, speeds. Um, so all these different things are uh, graphene. That's the thing I just I keep forgetting. If you think about it, you study all these things, these are converging, which will lead to that. And when the day arrives, that will be the end of capitalism. And that's could be by 2080. I mean, I don't think you and I will be around for that, but that's the good. That's the ultimate technology, right? And the empowerment of the individual. There's no, all your needs and wants are addressed. And that will probably start another cycle of civilization. They will start looking inward once all of our needs and wants are are, are met. I, I can imagine, right? It's hard to imagine what the world would look like. So it's technologies that are coming together but the Bitcoin, it will emerge on the other side. I, I don't see gold being the dominant monetary system by 2040. I, I believe by 2040, all of the issues and technology uh, and the speeds will be addressed, uh, the global connection, and the adoption rates will be there, and people will automatically, and won't be even talking about gold. Um, I, I don't think any longer. So it's just a trans. It's just it's a it's a place people will go when the confidence is lost, right? Bitcoin hasn't earned that yet, and it will. But it, it's obviously it's much more functional, I agree, than gold, and that's how I see it. So I don't. That's why I I don't like the fighting. I, I think it's both. What, why would you if you have a portfolio? Why would you limit? 100% to anything, because you can't guarantee they're not going to outlaw gold again or confiscate your Bitcoin. We don't know. Uh, there's a bunch of psychopaths that think that they know what's best for you. And we're going to deal with those people in time. So best to be diversified, right? And we'll see what emerges. That's my advice. Cool. Um, where can Where can people find your work? Uh, my work, I, I launched a website just recently. It's the economiclongwave.com. Uh, and there I am publishing in simple ways more of an understanding of the long wave. You can follow me on Twitter. And on my Substack account is for people who want to have access to the model. Right? I've I, I said I want to provide solutions, which is really free, but a lot of people are confused what to do, how to allocate their capital, right? And we're, we're going to see collapses in the system. So this model that got me to see the collapse in 2000, 2007 is there. It's only $20 a month. And it'll tell you how to allocate your capital. It's it's based on the lean indicators, right? The, the, it, it's driven by three things. And you can try it out and see if it benefits. By the way, let me it's not a trading account. I'm not looking at stocks day to day. It's just secular things. We're riding, we're riding the wave, the business cycle, and then when it turns down, we're just stepping back. And so it's a very simple system. I'm trying to simplify it. So if you want to learn more, I, I, I'm always open to long wave students. I'm, you can understand it. I've started a YouTube channel. I'm loving that. I should have done this a long time ago because it's great. It's I can articulate one chart. Here's the story. Keep it short. Oh, people get it more. 
And it's doing really well in a short time and in a, in a couple of weeks since I launched it. So that's where you can learn more about the long wave and uh, get an insight where we're going. That's the most important thing. And I, I will say you, you do have great visuals and I, uh, I, I love seeing your posts, particularly on Twitter. Uh, the, the, the graphs can, uh, have, have really helped me, um, understand a lot of what you're talking about. So, uh, definitely encourage anyone who's listening to find you there and, uh, and, uh, see what you have to say. So we'll, we'll wrap here. I, I really want to thank you for coming on. This was a, a very, uh, illuminating conversation and, uh, Hopefully we'll get the opportunity to do it again. Yes, there's a, I look forward to it. There's so much is going to happen. And, you know, we can just always just talk about the, the monetary crisis that's coming. So if you want me on, yeah, just give me a shout and I'll, I'll let you know what I see. Uh, the gold, the battle for the bricks, uh, how Bitcoin, what is happening with specifically the monetary system. And if you want to talk about the technology of the future and where we're headed. That's exciting too. So I'd love to do it. Definitely. All right. Uh, thanks again. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin Forward Benefits and Pension Advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 